Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Episode 7. Abraham is one of the defining figures of the Old Testament. In a very real sense, he is where it all begins where the nation of Israel is concerned. In order to understand why he is so revered, one must examine his story in the context of the time in which he is said to have lived. Most traditional dates place him near the beginning of the second millennium BCE, living the life of a desert pastoral nomad, not unlike the life of the Bedouin Arab. In this episode, we will spend our time looking at that world in order to give background and context to the stories that will follow. While we don't have any textual evidence that Abraham existed, the picture painted in Genesis about his time is largely consistent with what we know from other sources. Comparisons with Bedouin life from later times can shed considerable light on Genesis, and that's what we'll do in this podcast. The Bedouin nomads are legendary for their fierce independence. The desert is a world without any overarching system of laws or means that can compel any one man to do anything he doesn't want to do. There are no state sanctions against crime. When tried, historically, they don't make much of an impact. At the same time, the Bedouin are also famous for a sense of egalitarianism. This lack of ruling structure led to the personal reputation as the foundation of political power in desert societies. In fact, reputation is a form of wealth, as we will see later. If you live in a society where anyone can do whatever they want, with no mechanism to compel obedience, power grows out of one's ability to give good counsel, settle disputes, provide good information and knowledge, and an audience to influence in the first place. One cannot inherit such things. They must all be acquired. Although the Bible speaks of Abraham using money on rare occasions, notably his purchase of the cave at Machpelah as a family burial ground, most nomadic societies did not rely on money. There are very good practical reasons for this. Money is heavy and bulky. You can't drink it if you're thirsty, eat it when you're hungry, or burn it when you're cold. It makes you a target for raiding, or worse, people looking for a loan. Buying expensive goods also makes you a target, and fine clothing will look very ordinary after a few weeks in the desert. Besides, there's nothing in the deep desert to buy. Wealth, then, must be very mobile, easy to preserve, and impossible to steal. In other words, it must be non-material, like reputation. But what about herd animals? It is true that you can eat them if you need to, and use them as a medium of exchange, but if you expand a large flock or herd in order to increase your wealth, you will need people to tend them and guard them against raiders. What do you pay them with? All you have are animals, so you use those. Since a family becomes self-sufficient once they reach a certain threshold of herd size, eventually your herders will earn enough to go out on their own. In other words, using animals as currency has practical limitations. 
We still have not answered the question of how reputation can function as wealth in a pastoral nomad society. As we mentioned before, reputation is what gives someone the ability to get things done, to enjoy standing and power to the extent that anyone has political power at all in such a society. There are connections between reputation and goods. The most important is probably generosity. If you acquire more herd animals than you need, you give them away to someone who does not have as many. This enhances your reputation. We will talk more about the specifics of generosity in the context of desert hospitality later. Another avenue is acquisition of goods or animals by raiding and taking them from others. Historically, raiding has been a very large part of nomadic culture. Skill as a raider was considered a measure of leadership, cunning, craftiness, and courage. The more audacious and bold the action, the greater the status acquired. Good raiders were often marked as possible leaders for a tribe, assuming they lived long enough. But suppose you enact a successful raid and come home with a large herd of animals that previously belonged to someone else. What becomes of all that extra loot? Just as before, you give it away. In fact, a favorite example of mine is recorded by anthropologist Alois Musil, who, writing in the late 1920s, told of a Rawala Bedouin raider who took his booty and made a gift of it to the wife of the very man he had just robbed. Now that you're thoroughly confused by this strange attitude of deference to intangible reputation and indifference towards tangible wealth, let me summarize it for you. Among the desert pastoral nomads of the Near East, you gain reputation based not on how much material wealth you acquire, but on how much passes through your hands and what happens to it. This helps explain a rather odd episode in Genesis chapter 14, which begins when a coalition of foreign kings rampages through the region and sacks the five cities of the plain, including the city of Sodom. Among the things seized and carried off was Abraham's nephew, Lot. Abraham leads a rescue mission, consisting of his own personal trained men, in a daring raid that surprises the enemy kings, winning their plunder for himself. He then turns around and returns it to the feckless local kings, so that, as he says to them, lest you should say, I made Abraham rich. This episode is not just to say that Abraham was a tough guy not to be trifled with, but to explain why Abraham was such a significant local and regional presence. His raid to free his nephew was certainly the stuff of which high reputations would be made in a nomadic desert culture. Other forms of generosity would be gifts made to friends and allies as a way of expressing thanks and helping to secure their loyalty. The use of gifts as a political tool is a fascinating subject by itself, which we don't have time to more fully go into in this episode, but we'll explore it in more depth in a future installment. Speaking of generosity, when one talks about the desert nomad, it's only a matter of time before someone raises the hospitality traditions for which the Bedouin is justly famous. Extending hospitality to a stranger is one of the sacred obligations of the desert dweller and has been for years beyond count. This cultural value goes beyond the tent and extends into the cities and even the palaces of the great. 
Throughout the ancient Near East and the classical world, to be hospitable to the stranger was to secure the favor of the gods. Likewise, to flout or ignore the rules of hospitality was to mark oneself as uncivilized and reviled by God, awaiting only the right moment before you got yourself smitten but good. In the eyes of ancient society there was arguably nothing more contemptible than refusing hospitality or, worse, preying on a traveler. This helps to explain why the stories of Abraham hosting the mysterious travelers at his tent, with a detailed description of the lavish meal he set out for them, is followed by the promise that Sarah, his wife, would bear a son after a lifetime of infertility. The one is intended to explain the other. The subsequent story, in which Lot shows hospitality to these same messengers in Sodom, even at the risk to himself and members of his family, explains both why his family alone was allowed to escape and to justify God's destruction of Sodom. It had nothing to do with homosexuality, incidentally, as is sometimes maintained. It was about Sodom's habit of abuse towards vulnerable travelers and taking advantage of hospitality norms to prey on those who still practiced them. This is one of the most important cultural concepts in the Bible. Once you become familiar with it, you'll see it all over the Old Testament, and the New Testament for that matter. As we noted earlier, another aspect of the nomadic economy that needs mentioning is the use of gifts as a political tool. In an economy that is light on the use of money, barter is commonplace. However, gift-giving is a form of exchange that goes beyond mundane commerce. Gifts were another way to establish relationships, reputation, or even place underlings under obligation. Gift culture in the eastern Mediterranean basin has very deep roots. Records of gifts as a tool of statecraft go back at least as far as the mid-third millennium BCE in the ancient Egyptian text, Teachings of Tahotep, which instructs the reader that positions of authority demand generosity. This and other related literature from the region treat gift-giving from a position of power as a charitable or civic duty. However, there is also obligatory gift-giving which follows a fairly fixed protocol and can be manipulated by either party for political advantage. Scholar Victor H. Matthews isolates four elements that continue to inform this practice in varying degrees down to the present day. Number one, gifts must be given by a patron for every service rendered by a client. Number two, all gifts must be equally measured so that there is no advantage to be gained on either side of the exchange. Number three, failure to give an appropriate gift dishonors the donor and insults the recipient. And fourth, the recipient may not contest the gift offered, at least not outright, but they can demure and either politely refuse the gift or negotiate a change in gift. This is fairly important, as we'll soon see. While any exchange of gifts can establish relationships, the value of the gift is important. Reciprocation is expected. This means that gifts of roughly equal value will be exchanged, 
which also means that most gift exchanges take place between members of the same general economic stratum. However, there are some instances where a richer or more powerful person will give a gift that is beyond the ability of the receiver to reciprocate. In such cases, assuming they accept the gift, it places the receiver under an obligation until such time, if any, that they can repay, effectively binding them to the donor. Gifts could also convey messages not overtly expressed, but clearly understood nevertheless. For example, a gift of offering protection of one tribe by another, if accepted, amounted to an admission of their inability to defend themselves and, additionally, acknowledgment of their status as a vassal tribe vis-a-vis -vis the stronger tribe. This helps explain why Abraham refused to accept the cave of Machpelah when he expressed interest in acquiring it as a family burial plot, even though it was offered to him as a gift. He wanted the plot to be free of the usual encumbrances of a gift. Likewise, the negotiations over the exchange of gifts when Jacob and Esau met after Jacob's long absence start to make more sense in light of these rules. We'll explore these and other examples of how this works in future podcasts. We now come to one of the more difficult aspects of nomadic life in the ancient Near East, at least through modern eyes, and that is the place of women and their role in society. It's important to understand these dynamics if one wants to see the motivations behind the actions of women such as Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and Hagar, a handmaid whom Sarah gave to Abraham in order to sire children. It helps to explain polygamy, concubinage, and the disposition of female prisoners taken as spoils of war. Looking once again to desert society, women are valued mainly for their ability to bear children. This is a very practical view, since, as we saw earlier, political power grows both out of demonstrated political skill and having a body politic within which to operate. Bearing children, especially male children, provided the raw power needed for a family, clan, or tribe to enforce their interests. At the same time, women who are incapable of bearing children are in a very dangerous situation. Without children, there will be no one to care for them in their old age. A lone, childless woman could likely look forward to little else than an early death from starvation unless she could find another source of income. That usually meant selling herself either as a prostitute or a slave. This is why marriageable females captured in war were distributed to households. It gave these women a family and, quite frankly, was the best possible outcome for them. It also explains why the rapist was obligated to marry his victim. As horrific as we find this today, the alternative was for this now unmarriable woman to life without a husband, let alone children, and all the deadly consequences that went with it. This also explains the so-called leveret marriage, where the brother of a man who dies without offspring is to marry and produce children with his late brother's wife, so that she had children to care for her. This need to procreate produced incentives for various innovations allowing different kinds of family relationships. It is why it was possible, legally, 
for a woman like Sarah to give her slave girl Hagar to Abraham, with the understanding that any child she bore would legally be, belong to Sarah and be considered hers. But Sarah eventually expelled Hagar and her son Ishmael from the household when she began to fear that Hagar and Ishmael might actually supplant her, limiting her options for survival. In nomadic society, women were hoarded, you might say, and guarded partly as an expression of patriarchal culture, but also because of their key role in expanding a tribe's political power. This is why, for instance, both Bedouin culture and what we find in Genesis allow for endogamy, which refers to marriage between close relatives. So, for instance, Abraham's wife Sarah was also his half-sister. Isaac weds his cousin Rebecca, and so on. Later, biblical law proscribes these kinds of marriages, but early on they were the norm. When you live in an environment like the one that was home to the ancient pastoral nomads, with very high infant and child mortality and relatively short lifespans, reproduction means survival for yourself and your family. You do what you have to do. Women were not given as gifts. To do so would be madness, since it could easily enhance the power of a rival or potential rival. Only in very rare circumstances, such as establishing long-term alliances, did you find women being used in this fashion. All that being said, the women of the Old Testament are a feisty bunch, with more than their share of grit, craftiness, and strength. In that regard, they have much in common with their nomadic sisters throughout history. What we've covered in this installment will seem a bit esoteric, so I must indulge your patience while we look at these cultural oddities. As we get into the patriarchal stories, and as you read elsewhere in the Old Testament for yourself, they will help you see that world as a bit less foreign. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.